0: It's Thursday, January 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House has formally delivered the articles of impeachment to the Senate so they can begin their trial. Speaker Nancy Pelosi also named a seven-member prosecution team to make the case for impeachment. One of the biggest questions that remain are whether any witnesses will be called and if new evidence released by Democrats will make an impact. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, joins us for more. Next, the FAA is investigating why a Delta Airlines plane making an emergency landing at LAX dropped jet fuel over a playground covering children and some adults. Special procedures dictate that if necessary, fuel dumps must be made from higher altitudes and over unpopulated areas. Thankfully, there were no serious injuries. Colleen Shelby, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more on the outrage after this fuel was dumped on Kid. Finally, the last Democratic debate before the Iowa caucuses was on Tuesday, and everyone was waiting for fireworks between Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren for comments he allegedly made saying a woman could not win the presidency. While the candidates did play nice on stage, there was a tense moment between the two after the debate. Emily Glazer, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the moments that mattered. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: On January 2nd, newly unredacted Pentagon emails, which the House subpoenaed and the president blocked, raised serious concerns by the Trump
0: administration officials, by Trump administration officials. They were concerned about the legality of the president's hold on the aid to the Ukraine. Joining us now is Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill. Thanks for joining us, Brett. Thanks for having me. So the House voted and they approved to pass along the articles of impeachment over to the Senate for the trial tell us a little bit about that vote and then speaker nancy pelosi also named the seven member team who are going to be serve as the prosecutors during that trial as well we
2: were kind of anticipating this for several weeks About vote to finally send those articles over to the Senate to get that process moving. And Speaker Pelosi, as you said, named the seven representatives who will essentially make the case for Democrats and make the case for Trump to be removed from office in the Senate. So it was a fairly diverse group. It was a mix both as far as race, gender, geographically where they're from. You had a few more established representatives like Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff, as well as a couple of freshman representatives. So a fairly diverse group. But with that announcement today from the speaker, things should get rolling here now into the trial itself.
0: And we were waiting for weeks for this to actually happen. I guess Nancy Pelosi was trying to hold out so they can negotiate terms of the trial or to see if there was going to be any witnesses called. In the end, she didn't succeed on that front. I think the Senate wanted to move along with it so quickly and nothing really got done on that front.
2: Democrats will argue that the speaker was able to essentially shed light on the process and get some national attention on how fair the process would be or how the process itself would shake out. But aside from that, Democrats didn't really secure anything specific from Republicans as far as hearing from witnesses specific allotments for who would be heard and and how things would shake out. She didn't really gain anything tangible necessarily. Now, it's possible we'll still hear from witnesses. That will ultimately depend on whether a handful of Republicans decide that they want to hear from witnesses. But in the interim, all the speaker really got from holding on to those articles was sort of more attention on how the process will
0: work. Senator Mitt Romney is one of the Senators who says they want to hear from at least John Bolton, the former national security advisor at the White House. I know the White House wants to call some witnesses, notably people like Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi and and things like that, presumably to embarrass them in this whole process. So we know that the president is going to get acquitted in the Senate, but that's the only kind of hang up there to see if there will be any other witnesses called really.
2: The White House today essentially said, you know, they expect this trial to be over quickly. They don't expect there to be witnesses called because their argument is essentially the case is so weak against the president that there's no need to hear from witnesses. They believe that senators should just dismiss these charges out of hand. Now, that's very unlikely that that's going to happen, that they'll just dismiss the charges. And as you said, Mitt Romney has said he'd like to hear from John Bolton, Suzanne Collins, Lisa Murkowski, a few others have at least left the door open to hearing from witnesses. And in the event that, current or former administration officials like John Bolton do get called to testify, I think that increases the likelihood then that the White House will want folks like Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or Adam Schiff even, if such a thing is possible, yeah. that they would want those folks to testify as well.
0: The White House is predicting that the Senate trial will last less than two weeks. If it lasts any longer, it might kind of infringe on the State of the Union speech by the president, but it should be wrapped up before then. Senators have all kind of signaled that it's going to go pretty quickly. But that sets up the president for a big victory lap. As we've been mentioning, the votes are just there to acquit him in the Senate trial. And the president is going to be riding high by the time that the State of the Union comes up.
2: So the State of the Union is scheduled for the moment, for February 4th, and the White House has accepted an invitation. So there's every expectation that that's when it will happen. Now, there is some belief that Nancy Pelosi and Democrats maybe were hoping that by holding on to these articles, that would help kind of push the process farther into the calendar and maybe prevent something like that happening, where he can take a victory lap during his State of the Union. So as we've been saying, a lot kind of depends on whether witnesses get called to testify. Because if they don't, there's certainly a very good chance that this process is all done and wrapped up By the time he's delivering that address in early February,
0: there was some interesting new evidence that the house intelligence committee released on Tuesday. This was information that was turned over by Lev Parnas, who was a former associate of Rudy Giuliani. And in it, there was like personal notes and things. And there was something that Rudy Giuliani had wrote saying in my capacity as personal counsel to the president. And with his knowledge and consent, I'm requesting a meeting with you this coming Monday, May 13th, or whatever the dates were. this is a note that he was sending to the Ukrainian president Zelensky coming from Rudy Giuliani. What do we know about this new evidence?
2: So Democrats, they released it last night, right before the debate, right before the president's rally. Democrats are pointing to these notes that Lev Parnas has shared with them as essentially further proof in their eyes that the president was aware of what was happening in Ukraine to push Ukrainian officials to investigate his political rivals. So introducing it at this stage, it's unclear how big of an impact it will have in the Senate trial because Republicans, I think, a couple of them have already said essentially, you know, the House had its chance to make its case and this evidence coming out after the fact won't necessarily sway minds, but it will be interesting to see whether voters take it into account and see it as Democrats do as further evidence that the president was involved in something
0: inappropriate here in Ukraine. Brett Samuels, White House reporter at The Hill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
1: This flight was taking off to Shanghai, and shortly after, the uh, pilot radioed in saying that there was a compressor stall, which isn't a totally uncommon situation. It doesn't always necessitate an emergency landing, but in this case, because of the distance, they decided to
0: head back to LAX. Joining us now is Colleen Shelby, reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Colleen. Thank you for having me. There's an interesting story. Delta Flight 89 had taken off from LAX and it was on its way to Shanghai. When they had some type of engine trouble, they had to turn back around. The interesting part that happened, they had to dump a lot of fuel, I guess, to make weight so they could land properly. And the unfortunate part of that was that some of that fuel that they dumped out ended up showering over a bunch of elementary school kids in Cudahy and other neighboring cities right there. Colleen, tell us a little bit about what happened.
1: There's a lot of unknowns at this point. I can tell you what we do know. We know that this flight was taking off to Shanghai, and shortly after, the uh, pilot radioed in saying that there was a compressor stall, which isn't a totally uncommon situation. It doesn't always necessitate an emergency landing, but in this case, because of the distance, they decided to head back to LAX. The pilot initially said that he did not need to dump any jet fuel. And at some point along the way, that decision was reversed. And we don't know if there were further communication. We don't know if the pilot decided that something needed to change. But we do know that at about 2,300 feet over Kodahai, as you had mentioned, there was jet fuel that was dropped over a playground. It hit about 20 students and 11 adults. And then in nearby areas, other children and adults were also affected.
0: You mentioned that there was a bunch of students and some adults in the area that did get sprayed with some of the fuel really no major injuries but there was like skin irritation and obviously the smell was really bad so LAFD
1: and LA County Fire they ended up treating about 60 people in total with minor injuries so there was nothing severe but being doused by jet fuel is something to look at we had students talk to one of my colleagues Andrew Campa about smelling that smell of gas they walked outside they thought it was rainy and then realized that they were hit by some other weird substance and because the plane was so low i mean it was just i imagine a very frightening scene especially if you're a kid but not expecting something like that
0: it looks like it's smoke you can't really tell exactly that it's fuel coming out of there so i mean if you're looking up at it and expecting you know just seeing like some smoke or whatever and then you're getting rained on with fuel. I mean, yeah, that's got to be pretty off-putting. I know that there's uh, special procedures in place for when something like this has to happen. Obviously, those procedures weren't followed. We don't know exactly why, but what procedures do they have in place for this?
1: FAA usually recommends that if you need to dump fuel, that you do it above 10,000 feet or higher to give room for those vapors to just evaporate so it doesn't feel like rain coming down, and to do it over an unpopulated area. So this is another question that's come up because we know that... The plane had made its way over the Pacific at one point. It was over some other unpopulated areas. So we aren't totally sure at what point the decision was made to drop that fuel and why it was made to do over these residential areas, since that is not the ideal situation.
0: And this area, this community in particular, has been affected by a bunch of different environmental problems. I know there was like a battery recycling plant in one of the neighboring cities there. It was emitting cancer-causing arsenic and lead. So it just seems like another slap in the face of this community that something like this would happen when they've already been dealing with other things.
1: That's right. And we had some local officials say just that much, that they were disappointed that this was happening, that once again, that their community seems to be affected by this. There are large swaths of pollution in this space. So I think that, you know, as you mentioned with the environmental issues, this is something that's been, you know, an ongoing concern, obviously not the extent of jet fuel dropping daily, but certainly other factors have been at play in the past.
0: And then what kind of investigations are we looking at? I know the FAA is looking into, I know city officials are really angry about this and they're calling for investigations also. So we
1: don't have any further details at this point of what's been uncovered or how the decision came about. We just know that FAA is looking into it. We know that Delta put out a statement saying that typically what would happen if the plane needed to release some weight, that it might do so in a capacity like this. But again, we don't know how the decision was made or where it came from. So ultimately, the decision would be from the pilot, even if ground control or Delta operation said you need to drop some weight, it would be the pilot who would make that final call. But we don't know where the direction came from or just how it ended up playing out like it did.
0: Colleen right. Shelby, reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: senator sanders cnn reported
3: yesterday that and senator sanders senator warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018 you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election why did you say that
0: well as a matter of fact i didn't say it joining us now is emily glazer politics reporter for the wall street journal thanks for joining us emily thank you for having me We had the last debate before Iowa votes, and we really start seeing where voters are with the Democratic candidates running for president. Emily, tell us about some of the big moments that happened in the Democratic debate. I know a lot of people were really looking to see if there was going to be fireworks between Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren for the remarks that he supposedly told her saying that a woman can't win the White House. How did that whole thing play out?
3: Initially, it was all friendly, more or less. And the most interesting actually exchange between the two of those candidates happened after the debate was over. So I'm going to start there first. Elizabeth Warren refused Bernie Sanders handshake. It was all caught on TV. This is at the end when the candidates usually kind of walk up and down the stage and kind of exchange pleasantries. And that was just not going to happen between the (laughs) two of them. So after Ms. Warren refused the handshake, there was this kind of like tense exchange between the two of them. No one really knows what was said. Interestingly, Tom Steyer for part of that was just standing in between the right. two of them I, I <laughs> waiting to shake was, hands. It yeah. was funny
0: because he couldn't tell if he was coming to shake their hands or if he like heard them kind of getting a little tense and he wanted to kind of maybe referee or something. He just looked out of place right there while they were yeah, saying they were. Yeah, I think he was trying
3: said. to like say thank you and good night, but they were pretty locked in on each other. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen some reporting today that basically, as you said, Elizabeth Warren has said that Bernie Sanders told her in this 2018 dinner that has now been very publicize that he did not think a woman could win. And Mr. Sanders, on the other hand, has said that is ludicrous and he never said that. And he reiterated that during the debate. Also, interesting, though, in that moment, they did keep it pretty friendly all night. Right. But Ms. Warren did say, look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. The only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy and me. And so that was definitely one of the big lines of the yeah, evening, totally. where she kind of gave it to the four other male candidates and clearly said, Someone on her team had done a lot of research there for her to say that line.
0: They did play nice during the debate. And even though Elizabeth Warren said, yes, Bernie Sanders did say that to me. How do you think it came across maybe to the voters? Like, was it a satisfactory answer from Senator Sanders?
3: you know a lot of this gets into that electability question can a woman run for president and what we've seen from a, a bunch of media reports today is that for a number of voters it actually didn't really change their opinion either way on the candidate there definitely was some stuff trending on twitter a never warren hashtag but it turned out it seemed like a lot of that was from people saying not to use the hashtag so we don't want to take in too much of what the media might be spreading versus your average voter in iowa the first early nominating contest in the whole round of primaries and caucuses that are about to start up next month. So I don't think we should read into it too much for now. It sounds like it didn't really do too much and that they both have their very loyal supporter bases. And it isn't really clear if either of them broke out from that. I think on top of all of it, there's this concern that infighting will be really hurtful to the party because Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign was described by some as divisive. And there have been some Democratic critics that are concerned that his supporters didn't turn out for Hillary Clinton and worried about what could happen if he is not the nominee. So I think overall, there's a big question of whether the infighting should really stop. And for Democrats, at least, that it could help President Trump win again, as opposed to help either of the Democratic candidates.
0: How did the candidates fare when they spoke about foreign policy and the presence of troops in the Middle East?
3: That was really the way that the debate was kicked off. And with good reason, I think that's what a lot of people are very curious about. After President Trump decided to authorize an airstrike that resulted in the death of Iranian Major General Qasem Soleimani, and that reignited this whole debate over America's military footprint in the Middle East. And the candidates were almost unanimous in arguing for a diminished U.S. military presence in the region, but they really differed sharply on a timeline for withdrawing troops Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were saying that the U.S. should pull out of the Middle East entirely, whereas former Vice President Joe Biden and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, two of the more moderate Democrats, disagreed, and they really thought that it was impossible to remove all troops from the Middle East. Meanwhile, former South Bend Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is the only veteran that was up on the stage, a veteran of the Afghanistan war, said that he favored taking a more limited approach and called for more military action to be authorized by Congress. So that dominated the first, at least least 30 minutes or so of the debate. And for the right reasons, that's all happening in real time. And there are a lot of questions about foreign policy and what kind of decisions that candidates would make that came up far more than other debates.
0: You mentioned Senator Amy Klobuchar. She had this moment where, you know, everybody's talking about Medicare for all, (laughs) things like that. And she said, hey, this Mm -hmm. debate isn't real at all. There's really not a broad support for something like this. Some people want a public option. This is probably the moderate stance on how to tackle Healthcare, But I thought that was a good moment for her to kind of reset it. And as I said, she is the moderate. So to really position herself that way
3: this debate isn't real. That's what she said. Yeah. And like you mentioned, she's saying that there's so many members of Congress and Democratic governors who don't support Medicare for all. And that's a plan coined by Bernie Sanders and very similar to Elizabeth Warren's plan. And like you mentioned, that Senator Klobuchar said that a public option should be pursued in addition to coverage for mental health, disabilities, and long-term care insurance. So she really brought those other aspects into the fold. And look, healthcare has come up in pretty much every debate. It's an area where the candidates do largely disagree. It's one of the biggest issues for the American public. And it was expected to come up because Mr. Trump tweeted this week that he had saved pre-existing conditions. And basically, the Trump administration has backed a lawsuit that would invalidate the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act, under the Obama administration, bars insurers from denying people health coverage because of past and current medical issues. So the Trump administration is basically also arguing against having the Supreme Court fast track consideration of that lawsuit. So the court may not decide until after the 2020 presidential election. But either way, the issue became front and center yet again.
0: In the end, Emily, who do you think came out on top and positioned themselves the best ahead of the Iowa caucuses?
3: To me, it didn't seem that there was a candidate that absolutely outshone everyone else. However, many could argue that Joe Biden did a steady job and a stable job during the debate, and he's already slightly ahead in the polls, and that this debate could have helped him further, especially with the inciting from Senators Sanders and Warren. And even though Senator Klobuchar had a couple of great moments, it didn't seem like it was enough to overpower anybody else.
0: Emily Glazer, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. was your daily dive